0: If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Morning, it's 830 on Friday, July 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, why Mississippi healthcare professionals are saying it's time to end the stigma on opioid addiction.
1: If it's a moral issue, then there's stigma. If it's on a bad person, there's stigma. However, if it's an illness, if it really is a brain disease, then something different needs to happen in terms of our reaction.
0: Then, will the reopening of the Emmett Till case bring justice? We'll hear opinion. And find out how Mississippi students are outpacing others in the nation. The latest on program, a progress in standardized testing. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hundreds of Mississippians are attending a two-day opioid and heroin summit in Madison to learn about addiction and treatment. Healthcare professionals say opioid addiction is a brain disease and it's time to end the stigma surrounding it. Ruth Ann Rigby is chair of the Opioid and Heroin Summit at Broadmoor Baptist Church. She tells MPB's Desiree Fraser why they're holding the summit.
2: This touches home because we have lost several um, young people in our community to this disease of addiction, and uh, and we want to stop that. We want to stop that cycle.
3: And you say you're in healthcare, care, so yes. this is something you see.
2: Yes, I work in behavioral health and addiction treatment. Uh, I'm director of business development for Capstone Treatment Center in Searcy, Arkansas.
3: And what do you see that is going on with this disease uh, in terms of expanding and and the numbers growing are you seeing that
2: we see it every day but no one wakes up in the morning and says i think i'll be an addict today you know you really have to trace the vine to the root to the hole in their heart of what's going on with them whether it's been an accident or a trauma you know they just didn't wake up and say i think i'll be an addict today and so you have to really look at what is the cause of it and, you know, we encourage families to really get involved. You know, a lot of families sit on the sidelines because they don't know what the next step is. And coming to the Opioid and Heroin Summit and our family workshop, that's the next step because there's a lot of tools and resources here. What kind of help can they get here? Well, we obviously have health care providers. We have clinicians and therapists here on site. Uh, we have a counseling center here at Broadmoor, so our team from that Uh, Agency is going to be here, and we have all our speakers that are clinical people. And what I
3: seem to be hearing from some is that uh, a number of clinicians are recovering addicts.
2: Yes. I'm a person in long-term recovery myself. Uh, I have 21 years.
3: Congratulations.
2: And, you know, it's a day-to-day. It's one day at a time. And so we're very passionate about the field that we work in.
3: Would you share a little bit of your story?
2: Yes. um, I have 21 years of sobriety and uh, clean time, and I was uh, brutally attacked at a service station 21 years ago on my way home uh, from work. And I didn't wake up and say I'd be an addict, but I grew up with an alcoholic parent, so I have the gene. And so immediately after that trauma, and that was 21 years ago, we didn't treat trauma like we do today, like we did back then. And so I started going to a physician with symptoms, and, you know, that started my cycle. And then I added alcohol on top of that, and I spiraled out of control very quickly in a matter of six months. And, you know, then my family had to take that step. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. And I went to treatment for a minimum of six months, but I went back to school to be an A&D counselor because I'm just very passionate about helping people. And many people that get into this field are very passionate, and I'm going to treat that family that I'm helping like they are my family member. I'm not going to place their family member in treatment where I wouldn't place my own family. And so that's where our passion comes from. And we don't want to lose any more people to this deadly disease
3: what is the biggest challenge in your estimation
2: i think we have to as a community we have to get more acti- active active um, we have to break the stigma you know my mother was a diabetic you know we can triage we know that she has to check her insulin every day uh, she has to check her sugars every day and take insulin And, you know, just like for people um, that are struggling with addiction that get into recovery, they have to work a program on a day-to-day basis. You just can't go to treatment and not apply what you learn on a day-to-day basis.
3: What has worked for you for 21 years?
2: It's a simple program. And, um, you know, I am very active in 12-step community. Uh, I have a sponsor. I do what I'm supposed to do on a day-to-day basis, and those are the things that you learn about in treatment. And, uh, you know, my family, my husband, even to this day, holds me accountable. And I have a good support group. You know, I don't make life-changing decisions unless I partner with them first, and that also includes my sponsor. So, you isn't you have to work the program? We want everybody to come out. Um, you know, we'll do this again next year, and uh, we want to break the stigma. We want to get people help, and we want to bring together public safety, public health, and community.
0: Summit chair Ruth Ann Rigby. Doug Lyons is owner of Clear Consulting. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser more on addiction recovery.
1: We are a firm that helps families and advisors uh, with people that have addictions.
0: What did you
3: want to get across to folks in talking about understanding addiction?
1: To me, the most important message today was for people to understand that it's a medical disease, that all addiction is associated with neural pathways and processes in the brain, that it's not a moral or ethical issue. It's not an issue uh, tied to anything other than a medical process, and that the recovery is possible, and they should have lots of hope if we apply the right solutions.
3: You mentioned that all people have some type of addiction or proclivities to certain things. Can you explain that?
1: Sure, so addiction is is, is a loaded word, but what I will say is most of us have experienced dysregulation with relationships to food, sweets, especially sugar, fat and salt are the three big ones, and If you can relate to that, most people can, then you can relate to someone who's addicted to a drug uh, or to alcohol, which is also a drug, but we forget that, because those people have the same process. However, they typically have a genetic genome uh, sequencing from their families or grandparents or great-grandparents that sets them at a much higher risk for for such disease. Uh, So our job is to help people understand that that's a treatable condition, and there's three primary things that need to be done. One, recognize it, then treat it. Uh, and after treating it, there's a couple things we have to do. We have to make sure we monitor their care for a long period of time, typically at least 18 to 24 months. We get our best results. We see that with physicians. Physicians who are required to go to treatment, who have addiction problems, and airline pilots, are both, both those groups are required to be in ongoing maintenance and care for five to seven years, depending on the jurisdiction. Those two cohorts recover at over 97%. So there's something very different with respect to how well they do. And I think we can point most of that to as long-term monitoring. So if we can find a way to do that with drug courts, which we're beginning to do nationwide, I think we'll see much better outcomes, and we'll restore communities and families, and it'll be a good thing.
3: Tell us about the stigma and how you hope to combat that.
1: Well, the reason I talked about the science of addiction today was because I think that's how we get to that issue. Um, if it's a moral issue, then there's stigma. If it's I'm a bad person, there's stigma. Uh, However, if it's an illness, if it really is a brain disease, then something different needs to happen in terms of our reaction. And that that very fact destigmatizes the notion that it's a moral construct. Uh, we don't do that with people with diabetes or cancer or heart disease. You know, we don't when a diabetic or an overeater eats another piece of cheesecake, we don't belittle them, incarcerate them, and tell them that they need to do something differently. So what we need to do is understand this as a primary biological brain disease, and then move from there.
3: Well, Doug Lyons, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to me. I appreciate it.
0: The Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics reports there were 256 deaths in 2017 that are suspected to be opioid-related. In other news, State Senator Chris McDaniel is outlining what he wants to accomplish if elected as Mississippi's next United States Senator. In what he calls a contract with Mississippi, the Republican from Ellisville addresses 14 topics, including education, budget reform, and immigration. McDaniel says he wants Mississippians to hold him accountable.
4: The establishment in Washington, from both sides of the equation, Democrats and Republicans, they're failing us. They lie to us, they campaign one way, then they govern another. I think both sides of the equation have to be challenged. We can do that by holding our leaders accountable, and this contract goes a long way to making sure that I'm accountable.
0: One of three opponents, U.S. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, says she's raised over $1.6 million in campaign funds. Campaign finance reports for all candidates, including McDaniel, are due July 15th. Coming up, will the reopening of the Emmett Till case bring justice? We'll hear opinion. This is MPB Think Radio.
5: MPB News is leading the way, covering stories that matter
0: to Mississippians with five first-place awards from the Associated Press, including breaking news, radio achievement, and public affairs reporting. Your source for a deeper look at today's top story is MPB News. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. After more than 60 years, the U.S. Justice Department is again investigating the Emmett Till murder. A recent report to Congress reveals the case has been reopened. 14-year-old Till was murdered in Mississippi while visiting from Chicago for alleged advances toward Carolyn Bryant. During the original murder trial, she testified that Till had approached her in a vulgar manner, which angered her then-husband, defendant Roy Bryant. He and the other defendant, J.W. Milam, were found not guilty by an all-white jury in 2007. Carolyn Bryant retracted her testimony as told to a history author, though her comments were published or weren't published until last year. Patrick Weems is co-founder of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Tutwiler. He tells MPB's Alexandra Watts, speculation is high in the area.
5: In some of the cold cases in Mississippi, we've had justice. Uh, in the Mississippi burning case, the three civil rights workers, we eventually had justice. In Meg Evers' case, we eventually had justice. There's never been somebody who's been brought to justice in the Till case.
6: And they didn't release a lot of information this morning about what the charges were, who were even bringing them about. Do we have any more information on
5: that? No, it was really vague, and I'm very interested to hear more. Uh, We know that Carolyn Bryant is the last living uh, person that was involved in the murder, uh, but we don't know if they found new information and and how they are going to connect her to the murder.
6: So Carolyn Bryan's the only living person connected, correct?
5: To our knowledge and to to most historians, um, she's she's the last living person um, that anyone knows about.
6: So why now? What new information was presented? I know there was a book.
5: Yeah, most people are, are coming up with the idea that this has to be related to the book, although the book didn't bring up too much information. She admitted that she lied. Um, but the statute of limitations on perjury is, is, uh, has passed, um, so it most likely is not going to be a perjury charge. Um, so the statute of limitations on murder uh, doesn't, there's no statute of limitations. And so um, whatever they found has to, uh, in, my, in our sensibility, has to be connected to the murder.
6: And what do you think is next for this? I know there are so many unanswered questions, but from what we know right now, what's
5: next? I would imagine that uh, hopefully the, the family will be making a statement soon. Um, hopefully we'll get uh, more information from the FBI um, and just see how it evolves. Uh, last time there was a grand jury that met in Greenwood, Mississippi, um, and they presented the information to the grand jury. So I imagine we'll, we'll be seeing something similar.
6: And how are people in the town and the surrounding areas, like the townspeople reacting to this, are a lot of them happy that justice is coming, or do you ever get the sense that people are just over it and they don't want to be associated with this case anymore?
5: Yeah, I think there's a lot of different uh, varying views. Um, um, A lot of people uh, feel that she's 85 or 90 years old, and this has been long enough. Um, uh, Some people feel that since she wasn't... Since Roy Bryan and J.W. Milam, the main murderers, um, had never been brought to justice, that should be on them. And then there's others that think justice is justice, and that if you're involved in a murder then you should be tried and and brought to justice. And unless we change our laws, that's what we should do.
6: Has there been an increased interest until lately?
5: Yeah, I I think there's been an uptick uh, until, uh, and in some ways the the Till case has just never gone away because there hasn't been justice. And so we're hopeful that uh, at the very least, if we don't get justice, that we'll at least know the truth and we'll be able to tell that truth to the public. So uh, we hope that the FBI does everything in its means uh, to pursue justice.
0: Emmett Till Interpretive Center co-founder Patrick Weems with MPB's Alexandra Watts. The Justice Department has no comment at this time. Coming up, find out how Mississippi students are outpacing others in the nation. The latest on progress and standardized testing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit mpbonline.org/cartag. We'll see you on the road.
0: This is Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Student achievement in Mississippi is steadily improving. That's according to state superintendent of education, Carrie Wright. Student scores are up on the most recent National Assessment of Educational Progress, or NAEP, NAEP. Kamona Burke is the state literacy director at the Department of Education. She tells us improvements in literacy are helping students in other areas as well.
4: The National Assessment of Educational Progress is um, an assessment that's given to um, students every two years, students from across the nation. Um, It is our gauge, kind of our dipstick, to see how well our students in Mississippi, uh, for example, are, are faring as it relates to or as compared to students in other states. That are based on national standards. What grades
0: are tested?
4: The NAEP tests grades four and eight with reading and math.
0: So, how is Mississippi doing from two years ago to this year?
4: Oh, Mississippi is faring very well. In 2015, for our fourth grade reading, that was um, we had a statistically significant increase in our skill score. Um, The national average is 221. 2013, we were at 209. In 2015, we got up to about 214. And so 2017, we were able to still increase, but we increased one skill score um, to 215. Um, And in our eighth grade reading this year, we saw significant gains in our eighth grade reading, also in math. So one thing that we have really been proud of is the fact that Mississippi is really – outpacing the rest of the nation as it relates to our increases in our skill scores on the NAEP.
0: Well, we certainly never hear that about Mississippi. That sounds like a first. To what do you attribute these much better scores?
4: Well, uh, Mississippi did adopt college and career readiness standards. And so um, our standards are uh, rigorous and comparable to standards that have been adopted in many other states in the nation. And um, in addition to that, Mississippi has had a laser light focus on literacy. Um, and, and, you know, in 2013, that's when um, the legislature passed the Literacy-Based Promotion Act. And although that statute um, covers the requirements for kindergarten through third grade, we've just seen an increase in, in a focus on literacy and in literacy across the content areas. And because literacy is not just reading. It's also being able to know the vocabulary in math and in science. And when a student is more proficient in reading, they can really excel in the other subjects as well. A lot of times that's the issue or the barrier that they need to cross. If they're having issues with reading, they're really not going to understand other content areas or, or subject matter. So I focus on literacy across the state, whether it's in our elementary schools or our secondary schools or even in our institutions of higher learning. Um, I think that all of us coming together together, has really made for a great perfect storm, is what I say. And so um, we have seen results and seen positive results as a result of that.
0: Could you tell us about the Individual Reading Plan, the IRP?
4: Yes. So the Individual Reading Plan was an amendment that was added to the Literacy-Based Promotion Act in 2016. As a part of the LBPA, um, teachers are required to um, provide intensive, Reading intervention to those students who have been identified as having a reading deficiency through a universal screener, and so um, although we kind of left it up to the teachers um, to document those interventions um, for the first couple of years, um, with the amendment we developed a template and just a um, a very uniform way to make sure that to just ensure that these interventions were being provided to students and also an opportunity for them to progress monitor on a chart and in a way that they can share these results with parents. And so once a student is identified for a reading deficiency, whether this student has an IEP or a 504 or not, the teachers must begin with a individual reading plan. And in that plan, they have to detail what the reading deficiency is, uh, which screener they use to identify it, and then list some things that they're going to do, that the school is going to do to support the student in increasing reading achievement, also give the parents some suggestions for ways that they can help at home, and then progress monitor to make sure that the intervention that they're providing is working. And if it's not working, um, then they're going to, you know, ensure that they try a different approach with
0: the student. Dr. Burke, you know there's an ongoing debate over the value of statewide assessment, kids studying for tests as opposed to studying or learning content. Can you address that?
4: I'm not sure I can address it from the point of view of the department or I can speak for the department, um, but as an educator, and I've been an educator for over 20 years, um, I just believe that comprehensive exams have always been in existence, whether they've been the K-12 level or, of course, on the collegiate level. And I believe that it gives some accountability to the students and also to the teachers for ensuring that students have mastered the skills that they should have been mastering in that particular grade level.
0: Is there a place people can access the report card?
4: Yes. On the MBE assessment website, they can access their individual school district's report card but they can also go to the NAEP website and access the um, Mississippi-specific report, but then also look at how Mississippi compares to other states in those particular um, in those math and reading areas.
0: And NAEP is N-A-E-P, for those who just N-A-E-P. heard NAEP, N-A-E-P. 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 Dr. Kimyana Burke is the State Literacy Director for the Mississippi Department of Education. Dr. Burke, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Coming up, a look at state health concerns during this National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you miss anything on MPB Think Radio, you can always stay up to date by logging on to our website at
7: mpbonline.org or use your mobile device and download our MPB public media app.
0: This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Experts say access to mental health services is an ongoing concern for minorities in Mississippi. As MPB's Ashley Norwood reports, they're exposed more often to social conditions that trigger mental illness.
7: Kiera Kincaid is 28 years old. The Jackson resident says she experienced a great deal of trauma growing up in Las Vegas. It got to the point to where I started exploding, got in trouble with the law here and there. Talking to a therapist, I was able to release my tension. But ultimately, it was getting to that point to where I could accept it. You might have a problem. Kincaid says fighting depression now as a mother, a student, a fiancé, and an employee is stressful. I still function in society. I try not to make my illness dictate how I'm going to act that day. If I am not on my medicine, though, I don't know how my day is gonna be. African-American adults are more likely to have feelings of sadness, hopelessness, and worthlessness than white adults, according to the nonprofit organization, Mental Health America. Dr. Clyde Glenn is a psychiatrist in Ridgeland. He says societal triggers like poverty can increase a person's risk for mental illnesses.
1: Needing to have a certain amount of income to survive, that stress in and of itself can lead to depression, anxiety, and excessive worry.
7: Glenn says access to quality services is limited.
1: Consequently, something that may be relatively easily addressed or treated might compound and become something much more egregious due to lack of attention or lack of treatment or lack of accessibility.
7: July is National Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. Ashley Norwood, MPB News.
0: Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Next Stop, Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.